Passengers, aloha and welcome. As you board, please move across your car to make room for everyone and kindly offer available seating to those needing special assistance. The show will begin momentarily. Thank you. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Welcome to Dave's Disney View podcast. Provided on our own version of the information highway in the sky. For those of you standing, please hold on to the handrails throughout our journey and stay clear of the doors. For the comfort of others, no smoking please. Thank you. Dave's Disney View is a look at the Walt Disney World Resort and sometimes beyond, as seen through the eyes of Dave, a frequent visitor, a one-time cast member, and an engineer who simply enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. Now, please keep your party together and put on your virtual mouse ears. And by all means, enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast with me, your host, Dave. This podcast is for the end of November 2011 and includes some news and updates from around the Walt Disney World Resort and a little bit beyond there. We start off with the Magic Kingdom this week. On October 31st, the Magic Kingdom introduced its first talking Mickey Mouse at the meet and greet in the Town Square Theater. I just happened to miss it. I was at the Magic Kingdom and was meeting Mickey Mouse at that location on October 30th, so I was uh, disappointed that I just barely missed it. But it started off as a limited test with talking Mickey making occasional appearances in place of the standard Mickey. Some videos of the meet and greets are now starting to appear on YouTube, and they are as impressive as the officially released Disney Parks demonstration that you may have seen online. I'll put a link to the YouTube video on my show notes over at uh, DisneyPodcast.net. Just take a look at that, and you can uh, watch the uh, video yourself. In other news, the Fantasyland expansion rolls along right on schedule. Trees for the forest are being planted in the area, and most of the heavy construction appears to be done. When I was in the parks in October, you could already see most of the Beast Castle high up on the hill, using another example of the force perspective to make it look more imposing than it actually was. And most of the Dumbo rides were in place. Workers were putting some finishing touches on some parts, and you could see a lot of elements coming together. We heard uh, this past week that uh, Eric's castle is also mostly complete, and there are clearly developed areas that are now taking shape. It's starting to look really, really cool, and I definitely have to check it out once it opens. And as part of the expansion, Fantasyland's Enchanted Grove, which was across from Cosmic Rays and sort of behind the Pooh ride, is going to be renamed the Cheshire Cafe. The Enchanted Grove, of course, was the original name given when the park opened, so it's going to take some getting used to realizing that it has a different name to it. I previously talked about the addition of Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom game that was being added to the Magic Kingdom. The official Disney Parks blog recently released a description and some photos of new interactive experiences being playtested by cast members. The blog shares this snippet of gameplay information. Early next year, Disney guests become the heroes in this role-playing trading card game as they try to defeat the Disney villains who are working to take over the Magic Kingdom. Armed with the magic spells in the form of special cards, players must search for the magic symbols that lead them to the animated villains' hiding places. By casting different magical spell cards, these sorcerers can do battle with Yzma and Kronk and other ne'er-do-wells hiding throughout the uh, lands. From fireballs to frantic frogs and cyclones, there are spells to bring down each and every villain with a simple flick of the wrist. Now, you think about it for a minute, you go, well, you know, you have the, uh, key- the Kingdom Keepers that was written by um, Ridley Pearson. 
and uh, you have all this uh, wizarding world of Harry Potter that has all the spells going on, and you kind of merge the two into sort of a storyline that you can interactively play at the Magic Kingdom, and you got something that could potentially be pretty cool. It's probably going to be worth a look on my next visit. Turning for a moment to the Animal Kingdom, Jiminy Cricket and Pocahontas will be leaving Rafiki's Planet Watch soon. And that's interesting because Planet Watch is currently the only place in Walt Disney World where you can meet Jiminy Cricket. We also hear that Turk, as well as Lilo and Stitch, will not be seen around the Animal Kingdom in the future. Also, the Adventure Begins Welcome Show will be ending its run. But on the plus side, the subtractions happen to coincide with the introduction of a new character lunch offering at the Tusker House, which begins shortly. Now, one thing I also wanted to add here is that we hear some thoughts and rumors that maybe Rafiki's Planet Watch itself will go away and be replaced with Pandora uh, as a part of the uh, Avatar experience. We'll see where that turns out, but that's interesting, and the uh, reduction of these characters may lead to that. Turning to Epcot, Disney is testing a new radio frequency identification system, or RFID, for park entry. You're probably familiar with RFID systems in a general sense, as they are in most credit cards, passports, even your vehicle's transponder that pays tolls on most highways in the United States. It's a passive electronic device that receives and bounces back a signal to a reader. During the testing, some Epcot guests were diverted to the left-hand side of the entry plaza. They had a Mickey sticker containing an RFID chip attached to their existing ticket, and then the magnetic strip on the ticket was scanned into a computer to match the park ticket to the RFID chip. Afterward, the guests were directed to one of two new entry systems, a queue for group entry and another designated for guests entering in single file, similar to the current system you see out there. The guests simply placed their ticket up to a Mickey Mouse head, and it prompts for a finger scan and unsuccessful validation lights up green and the guests are free to enter the park. There's no turnstile or barrier, just some cast members overseeing the process. The group entry area is very similar, but instead of having a single reader in a a queue, it is arranged with two banks of readers. It's ideal for a group entering together, especially with strollers or wheelchairs. Everyone can scan their tickets at the same time and enter all together without clambering through the turnstiles. So a couple of things I would say about this is that, one, it goes along with the observation I've made many times that the paper ticket sometimes gets damaged by getting wet, ripped, or whatever. Now it's less likely with the RFID tags. Using a proximity RFID means that the entry media could be changed to be some sort of a uh, wristband or a paper ticket with an RFID tag in it or a plastic ticket with an RFID tag or anything else that could have an RFID embedded into it. They're very small, and you can put it into something pretty tiny. Disney's been looking at the wristbands as part of the next-gen initiative, and this new entry system would tie very nicely into that. And the second thing I'd say is there's no need for tickets to physically pass through a machine, which gets them jammed, they get misread, the situation I talked about with it being ripped may have an impact, those types of things. Now, assuming Disney can make this work without physical barriers, I'm sure it would provide a better way for guests to enter the parks. Uh, Entry would be more fun, quicker, and those traveling with the little ones probably would be relieved of some of their pressure and hassle of dealing with park entry and trying to get the strollers through and catch up with the rest of their party. It's time to get things started on a more sensational, inspirational, celebrational, motivational. This is what we call the Muppet Show. Turning outside of the Walt Disney World Resort, it's the Muppets making a triumphant return. The new Muppet movie opened a little over a week ago, and you can once again see Kermit, Miss Piggy, Gonzo, Fozzie, all of your favorite Muppet friends in a really good, I mean amazing, film. I have to say, I saw it the day after it opened, and I loved it. I thought it was incredible, and the opening song really got me. I just thought it was really, really, really nice. Um, Well worth seeing, and I want to see it again, so I highly recommend it. (laughs) 
and you and you and you and you and you and you and well, all of you. Last month, the Disney Parks hosted a special augmented reality event in New York City at the Disney Store's flagship location in Times Square. This was a one-of-a-kind event wherein guests were asked to stand in a blue circle, and a camera took a shot of them and displayed it on the building across the street. And in the display, they were interacting virtually with a popular Disney character in a scene. It was a really cool piece of technology. There are some uh, pretty cool YouTube videos available, and I'll put some links to my show notes so you can see what it looked like. And then a few weeks ago, the Disney D23 community announced some new 2012 events. Steve Clark of the head of the D23 official Disney fan club said, quote, to help D23 celebrate its anniversary, we developed some of the most exciting lineups of special events to bring our members truly one-of-a-kind Disney experiences. We're excited to visit all our fans around the country and to create events we hope will surprise and delight them. Included among the highlights for D23 members, for the first time ever, a special tour of Walt's boyhood hometown, Marceline, Missouri, will take place for D23 members on March 14th. Led by Disney archivists, the day-long journey to Marceline explores the small town in ways that will have special and re- special resonance for Disney fans. So you can see how the town inspired Main Street USA and more. In later life, Walt found a unique inspiration at the Smoke Tree Ranch in Palm Springs. They're going to also have a D23 experience uh, where you can experience the exclusive retreat in a completely unique way in early January. In the spring, D23 takes the party on the road with a D23 anniversary celebration. It commemorates more than 40 unforgettable Disney magical milestones, each celebrating the end anniversary in 2012. Celebration events will be held in Orlando, New York, Chicago, Boston, San Francisco, and Los Angeles that revisit some of the most beloved Disney theme park attractions, animated and live-action films, and TV series from more than 85 years of Disney history. The year also includes four special weekends for members-only tours of the Walt Disney World Studios and Walt Disney Archives in Burbank. In the fall, during Epcot's International Food and Wine Festivals, D23's popular Sip and Stroll event gets a Halloween twist and becomes the Sip and Scream event. Uh, During the holiday season, D23 will again hold back-to-back presentations of its popular holiday offerings, Disney and Dickens in Burbank, and Magic and Merriment at the Walt Disney World Resort. And you can look for more D23 events to be announced throughout the year, including details on Epcot's 30th anniversary celebration and a fun-filled D23 third anniversary party at the Disneyland Resort. Full details in D23's lineup of 2012 special events can be found on the fan club's website at disney.com slash d23. Now, no word yet on another of the scavenger hunts or a similar event planned for Walt Disney World, but I will definitely keep my eyes, or maybe it's my Mickey Mouse ears that I'll keep open. And finally today, I'd like to end with a little bit of an update on the monorail accident that happened on July 5th of 2009. Previously, Disney had settled the lawsuits with the family of the pilot who was killed. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration had produced its report and fined Disney for its actions, or inactions as the case may be. The uh, order was sealed, so we don't know exactly what the fine amount was, but we know that it was a decent amount, uh, that there was a fair amount of uh, wrongdoing or negligence on Disney's part. And then on October 31st, the NTSB released its final report. Now, the National Transportation and Safety Board claimed jurisdiction because the monorail is a train of sorts that moves the public. Their report turned out to be 14 pages long, and I'll put a link to it on my show notes. It can be summarized like this. The facts outlined clearly put the majority of the blame on inadequate procedures and failure to enforce the exact safety procedures that would have prevented the accident. To its credit, Disney has already made a lot of the changes to correct what what went wrong. But even if Disney had just enforced one of the most common sense things, this tragedy could have been avoided completely. 
The report states that the probable cause was the shop panel operator's failure to properly position switchbeam 9 and the failure of the monorail manager acting as the central coordinator to verify the position of switchbeam 9 before authorizing the reverse movement of the pink monorail. Contributing to the accident was the Walt Disney World Resort's lack of standard operating procedures leading to an unsafe practice when reversing trains on its monorail system. Narrowing in on the shop panel operator, the report indicates that distraction related to multitasking calls from multiple monorails diverted the shop panel operator from his duties that would ensure that the track had been switched properly. There was also no requirement for visual confirmation of the switch having been completed despite a video unit immediately in the vicinity. As had been reported previously, allowing the coordination of a dispatch by an off-site manager, let alone someone not in the control tower, was not against Disney policies, but it had been identified as a direct contributor to the environment that allowed the accident to occur. The point is that a need for actual eyeballs on the track and the monorails as they're in motion is the key here. The control tower is configured for just that purpose, having adequate staffing so that when one cast member is sick, you have a backup on site to maintain the tower should have been a standard procedure. Even with both of these deviations in effect, if the monorail pilot had been instructed to switch cabins, as was actually in the monorail operating manual, and drive forward across the switch rather than in reverse, this whole tragedy would have been avoided. Disney used to enforce this procedure, but it fell out of favor in the efficiency of the late 90s. Because it takes time to move into a station, power down, switch cabs, power back up, and then to repeat the process. As one web author put it, quote, This kills me as a Disney fan. The four keys, safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency, were established at Disneyland circa 1966 by the excellent trainer Van Arsdale France. Efficiency is deliberately put at the end, but moves, like no longer requiring a pilot to switch cabins, made in the name of courtesy, saying that more efficient monorail system was a courtesy to the guests since they wouldn't have to wait as long between trains arriving at the station. Not only did they forget the first key, safety, they were also taking the cheap route to courtesy. Pretending efficiency is really courtesy usually results in what I consider bad show, but in this extreme case, it caused the death of a cast member. End quote. Despite technically not following the written procedures, the pilot of Monorail Pink was essentially cleared of any wrongdoing. Conditions were not optimal for the pilot, but were within the normal parameters of his uh, work operation. Disney could tighten up certain procedures to prevent operation with foggy windows or in low-light situations. They have already mandated the most important change, that the monorail pilot now switch cabins before reversing through the gates, and the second spotter sits in the other cabin. One thing that was not covered in the report is why Pink did not stop in the station after completing what would, would have been considered a normal beam switch. Instead, he continued at near 15 miles per hour out of the station to the point of the collision on the far side of the station. Another revelation was that the 15 mile per hour was the maximum speed at the time of the collision. Purple was stopped and in reverse, but not in motion, and pink uh, was in this Mapo override uh, situation, meaning that they could uh, go in reverse and uh, be nearer the other monorail than they normally would have been, which normally the Mapo would have automatically shut down the monorail if it goes over 15 miles an hour. If there had been any real thought to passenger safety in the construction of the monorail cab, this should have been merely a scare for both pilots. Instead, the fiberglass body and the plexiglass dome just crumbled in the low-speed collision, and the pilot of monorail purple had really no chance. Walt Disney World did submit a list of about 18 changes made to its operating procedures. They include the monorail drivers must be in the forward-facing cab when switching from one beam to another. Also, when monorails travel in reverse from the driver's perspective, a dedicated spotter or observer is assigned to, the monitor, to monitor such movement. Next, monorail drivers are required to visually confirm the correct position of switch beams prior to switching from one beam to another. 
A monorail central coordinator may only direct monorail to operate in MAPO override when it's transferring from one beam to another during the switching operations. When the monorail movement is under the direction of a monorail central coordinator, the coordinator must remain inside the designated control tower. Further, when the monorail central coordinator is directing switch operations, that coordinator must visually verify via an electronic power distribution monitoring system and video camera monitor that the beams are are in the proper switching position and that the power has been applied appropriately. Monorail shop panel operators are required to confirm the position of the switch beams via video camera monitors prior to directing the monorail movement. A second monorail shop panel operator must visually verify the switching process is properly performed by the primary monorail shop panel operator. Monorail operations employees have received additional training on measures to address condensation on monorail windshields. Next, the monorail manager on duty is required to remain in the premises of the Walt Disney World Resort when the monorails are under their supervision. The e-stop or emergency stop button in the driver cabs have been reconfigured to remain active when the console is inactive allowing a rear observer located in the non-operating cab to stop a monorail quickly. The set point for the cab climate control was adjusted to reduce internal condensation on windshields. A monorail tracking board that identifies the beams on which monorails are operating was installed for use by shop panel operators during the switching procedure. Monorail operations has designated a new radio signal which, when called, will direct all monorails to stop immediately. So the list appears to address nearly all of the concerns raised by OSHA and the NTSB. And from my perspective, knowing what I know about the monorail, I think it satisfies me that Disney is doing all the right things to uh, make the monorail a safe and efficient operation again. Now, we do know a couple of other things. Uh, We hear through the grapevine that the manager, who should have been at the control tower, uh, was uh, reprimanded informally and then moved to the buses and then on to watercraft. And we also hear that the accident caused $24 million in property damages. And then finally, Greg Hale, Chief Safety Officer of Walt Disney Parks and Resorts, added, Day in and day out, we review the safety procedures throughout our resort and continuously look for ways to improve our operations. We've been working closely with the National Transportation Safety Board during their review of our monorail operations, and we have already enhanced our system. We have just received the NTSB's brief, and it does not offer any further recommendations beyond what we've already done. Well, here's to hoping that Disney takes another hard look at its own safety. As I noted earlier, Walt Disney was big on checking and rechecking systems and then checking them again. It was once called the uh, triple check system, or something along those lines, where everything would be checked more than once. Three sets of eyes on something, ensuring that there was always safe procedures going on. During the Michael Eisner days, Michael looked at it a little bit differently. It was more of a company business. It wanted to make sure that everything was efficient and that we were spending money appropriately as a company and those types of things. And we hear that along the way, there were a lot of revisions made to this triple checking. If things could be double checked and you could still get an effective solution, why triple check them? Why put a third set of eyes on them? And so it would seem that along the way, a lot of things were changed to be double checked instead of triple checked. And this may have contributed to the accident. And I provide to you as evidence the fact that over the years, Disney World and Disneyland were extremely safe places. You really never heard about accidents that were of any severity at any attraction or at any venue. But beginning in about 1995, things started to change, and you heard about different dealings and different accidents and different things that had happened. And I think it's, that would be the evidence that supports the fact that you're not checking things quite as efficiently as maybe you did in the past, and you're seeing more accidents happen. So hopefully it continues to evolve and change, and we see more safe and happy experiences rather than some of these accidents that have happened over the last few years. And I would like to point out to you one very simple thing here. 
It's that these types of accidents, like the monorail accident, usually take a number of different events that all kind of come together in a confluence where everything happens in the perfect storm to, uh, to make an accident of this nature. I would refer you to any of the NTSB's incident reports. You can see how a confluence of events has led to an airline crash or a train crash or anything else like that, where usually it's many things that came together, or at least several things that came together, where if any one of them had happened, it probably wouldn't have been an issue, but all of them happening at the same time caused an issue. So here in Disney's case is exactly what, uh, what transpired. So hopefully things work out better in the future and we uh, hear about uh, fewer accidents. And again, my heart goes out to the uh, family of the uh, driver who was killed. It is really a sad thing. And, and also to the, uh, to the other people who were there and involved at that time. You know, they really had some Im – it impacted them directly. And as a ca former cast member, I can feel, I can feel their pain. So that's, uh, that's the story about the monorail. And hopefully in the future, Disney will uh, continue to, uh, to do better. So that's it for this week. That is my entire podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. From all of us, thanks for taking a listen to the podcast today. If you're standing, please hold onto the handrails and stay clear of the doors until the show stops completely and the doors open. Ladies and gentlemen, please collect your personal belongings, watch your head and step, and take small children by the hand. As this concludes our journey, we hope that you enjoyed the show and that you drive home safely. Our thanks go to Doug at geekacres.net for his contributions to the show. And also to Craig for the original music you hear on the show. You can find Craig's music over at ReverbNation.com slash sound A. If you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the show, please feel free to contact Dave at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Show notes and links to other great content on the web can be found at disneypodcast.net. Now, I will raise the safety bar, and a podcaster will follow you home. Ha 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 